Church, go ahead and grab your Bible this morning and open up with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And let's bow together for a word of prayer before we get started. Father, again, we're thankful for this morning. And uh, Lord, again, just through our songs that we sang and the scripture that we read, just reminded of the ground that we stand on this morning is your people. We do come trusting entirely in the merits of our great high priest who has won victory for us. We don't come trusting in our own merit. We come looking to Jesus and trusting in his saving power and his saving grace. The, the sound of saving grace is sweet to the ears of your people this morning. So Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to scripture that we would see that more clearly, that uh, Lord, the, the wonder and the power and the beauty of salvation would stand out. I pray for those this morning who don't know Christ, who don't know what it is to be freed from the fear of condemnation and the guilt that's ours because of our sin. I pray, God, that the beauty of the gospel would just burst onto the scene in front of them this morning through this passage. And we pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Just real quickly, church, to remind you of where we're going um, two weeks from today, we're planning to start a study going through the book of Colossians together. So two weeks from today, we'll start in Colossians. Of course, we just finished a little mini-series that we had been doing going through a section of the Psalms. And the last Psalm that we looked at in that little study was Psalm 32, which is a Psalm about the blessedness of knowing God's forgiveness. You remember David starts that Psalm saying, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. And I want to follow that up today just by uh, drilling down into that forgiveness a little bit. I want to think with you a little bit more deeply in Ephesians 2 about, about the nuts and bolts of our salvation. You know, Ephesians 2 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible when it comes to how we understand salvation. Really, the first 10 verses of that, ch that chapter spells out in detail who we are and how God saves us. The, really, the first three verses of Ephesians 2 is one of the clearest, most profound, most succinct passages in the entire Bible when it comes to explaining the depravity of man. It's where Paul says that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. That means we come into this world with hearts that are dead toward God. We come into this world with hearts that are not interested in God at all. Instead, Paul says that we're ruled by three main factors. We're ruled by the world, by our flesh, and by the devil. And because of that, Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. And his point there is that we spend our lives behaving as God's enemies, so we deserve for God to treat us like his enemies. We deserve to be separated from God and under the judgment of God forever. That's the first three verses of Ephesians 2. But then the turning point comes in verse 4, where Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That explains what happens at salvation. We were dead, God makes us alive. God, God reached down all the way into the mire and he pulled us out and he forgives our sins and he frees us from bondage. 
It's the greatest rescue story ever told. We were as low as we could get, and God reached down and pulled us all the way out. And of course, we know that he did all of that for us through Jesus. Jesus is the one who earned the righteousness that we so badly need. And Jesus is the one who, through his work on the cross, paid our sin debt for us. And Jesus is the one who overcame the grave for us. So Jesus is the one who won our salvation. But here's the question I want to think about with you this morning. How is it that I can be saved through a work that Jesus did 2,000 years ago? How can what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, how is that how is that applied to us? How can I actually be connected to that? And that's what Paul answers in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And even in saying that, your alarm bells should be going off in your mind because these are some of the best-known verses in the Bible, and rightfully so. Because in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul explains how, how three crucial components of salvation fit together. Grace, faith, and works. Listen now, if you don't understand where grace, faith, and works fit into salvation, and if you don't understand the order those things come in, you will likely end up believing in a false gospel. And so Ephesians 2, 8, 8 through 10 are so well known because they really get down to the bedrock of what we believe as Christians. And the way that Paul is going to help us understand how grace, faith, and works fit together is through the prepositions that he uses. Now, do you remember, do you remember learning about prepositions when you were in school? Those are those little uh, linking words that show us how parts of a sentence relate to each other. Words like in, on, by, at, for. Those are all prepositions. And prepositions change the whole meaning of sentences, right? So it makes a big difference whether you are on preposition a train or under a train. It makes a big difference whether your, your dog is by the oven or in the oven. A preposition changes the whole meaning of a sentence. Well, Paul's going to help us understand where grace, faith, and works fit into salvation in large part by the prepositions that he uses in these verses. So let's read it together and just keep an eye out for the different prepositions he uses in relationship to those words. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 8, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you get the different prepositions? We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. And we're saved for, or your translation might word it, unto good works. So I want to work through this passage under those three headings. Number one, 
We are saved by grace. Paul begins by saying, for by grace you have been saved. That means grace is the foundation of our salvation. Grace is the grounds of salvation. Grace is the driving force behind salvation. So then what does grace mean? I've always been fond of uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse's definition of it. Barnhouse said that when you love upward, that's worship. In other words, worship is when you love someone who is above you and greater than you. And Barnhouse said when you love outward, that's affection. Affection is when you love those who are on the same level as you. But Barnhouse said that when you love downward, that's grace. In other words, grace is when you love those who are beneath you and who can't do anything for you in return. So when we're saying that we're saved by grace, we're saying that God, in love, shows love to those who are beneath Him and who can't do anything in return for Him. Or maybe to use a, a legal example. Imagine that after church today, you are getting in your car and you're driving down Albany Avenue headed toward lunch and you get so caught up in thinking about what you have going on for the day that you lose track of your speedometer and the next thing you know there are blue lights flashing behind you and you pull over and the officer comes up to your window and he informs you that you were going 15 miles over the speed limit 15 miles an hour over the speed limit now what does justice call for there Justice means you get the legal consequences of your actions. So the legal consequences of your actions there would be to get a speeding ticket and to have to pay a fine for your actions. But if that officer didn't give you a ticket and instead let you go, he would be showing you mercy. So mercy is when you withhold the consequences that are due. Okay, where would grace fit into that story? Okay, again, think about it from a divine perspective. Mercy means that God negatively withholds the consequences that we deserve for our sin. But grace means that God positively gives us blessings that we don't deserve. Do you get the difference? Mercy means He withholds consequences. Grace means He gives blessings we don't deserve. So to go back to our story of the police officer, if he didn't give you a ticket, that would be mercy. What would grace be? Well, grace would be him instead giving you what you don't deserve. Grace would be instead of him giving you a ticket, him giving you the keys to a new car after he pulled you over. That would be him then giving you benefits that you absolutely do not deserve. Well, when Paul says that we're saved by grace, Paul is saying that God, through Christ, gives us blessings and benefits that we in no way deserve. Okay, that's the main thing the Bible wants you and I to know about salvation. We have not earned heaven. We don't deserve forgiveness. It's not that you and I are so cute that God just couldn't manage to spend eternity without us. I don't deserve for God to count me righteous because I'm not righteous. The fact of the matter is, I have broken God's law more times than I can count, so I'm the opposite of righteous. But God, by grace, credits me with the righteousness of Jesus. 
I don't deserve for my ledger of sins against God to be wiped clean. But God, in grace, counts my sins as having been punished in Jesus at the cross. So God is loading me down in Jesus. He is loading me down with blessings and benefits that I absolutely do not deserve. That's grace. So make sure you get this. Salvation is not, I do my part and God does his part. Like, like I reach up and God reaches down and our hands somehow meet in the middle and then God pulls me up. No. Salvation is God reaching all the way down. Salvation is God doing all the work, coming to sinners who deserve nothing but judgment from Him, and in kindness and love, giving us blessings and benefits that we don't deserve. And I want to be real clear on this, because every religious group out there will talk about the importance of grace. So if, if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at your door, or Mormon, or uh, Muslim, they'll talk about grace being important for salvation. But it is always grace plus something. It's grace plus the sacraments. It's grace plus your good works. I'll give you an example of that. We're familiar with Mormonism in our church. Listen to how grace is defined. This is off the LDS website. This is how grace is defined. They write... Grace is the enabling power from God that allows men and women to obtain blessings in this life and to, and to gain eternal life and exaltation after they have exercised faith, repented, and given their best effort to keep the commandments. Do you get the difference? They're saying grace is what God gives us after we, on our own, repent and exercise faith, and do our best to obey all the commandments. In other words, after you do all of that, well then God's grace will kick in and it'll make up the difference. You give it your best effort to obey and you exercise your own faith, you do all of that, you get the ball rolling, and then God will carry you the rest of the way. I think I've told you before about one of the, the cars that Courtney and I had when we first got married. We got a, a little Geo um, Prism from my parents that we, we drove, for a little, drove around in for a little while. It was a stick shift. And we hadn't been married but just a couple months when the starter went out in the Geo Prism. And as, as many couples are when you first get married, we didn't have money to put a new starter in the car. And so we had to wait a month to get our next set of paychecks before we could afford a starter for the car. But as you know, the good thing about a stick shift is you can get a stick shift going if the starter doesn't work. If you can get it rolling, you then just pop the clutch and off you go. And so I drove it for a month. I just had to make sure I had a runway in front of the car whenever I parked. And we were living in an area that was pretty hilly, so if I could get on a hill with a little space in front of me, I would just let off the emergency brake and it would start rolling. In fact, in our driveway, there was a slight downhill leaving from the house. And every morning when I would go to work, I would sit in the driver's seat, I would open the door like Fred Flintstone, I would put my foot out and I'd start pushing backwards as hard as I could and once it got rolling a little bit, I'd pop the clutch and off I would go. I just had to put some effort to get it rolling and then it would take off from there. Well, that's how a lot of people think about salvation, that you just got to get it rolling, right? You just got to get a little religion 
and you got to clean yourself up a little bit and you got to start going to church. You get things rolling. If you do well enough at that, God's grace will kick in and God will carry you the rest of the way. But Paul is saying that's not how grace works at all. Grace is not the partnership where God comes in after you do all that you can do. No, grace is God providing everything. Grace is God coming to people who can't get kick-started on their own. It's God coming to people who are lost in the mire of their sin and God providing all the work. I don't know if y'all heard that, but that water bottle just emptied on the stage. God provided all the work. God did everything for us through Christ. That's what he means when he says that we are saved by grace. That's the first thing. We're saved by grace. Here's number two. Secondly, Paul says, we are saved through faith. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And notice, again, we've got a different preposition here, right? Paul doesn't say that we're saved by faith. In other words, faith isn't what drives this. Faith isn't the grounds in this. Faith isn't the power in this. Grace is. We're not saved by faith. Paul says that we're saved through faith. So get that order in your mind. Because it's easy sometimes to think that faith is what sparks the chain reaction of salvation. Like faith is what comes first. You spark it, you have faith, and that starts the reaction where then everything else happens. But Paul's saying, no, 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 that's backwards. It's not, it's not faith that's the grounds of this. It's grace that's the grounds of this. It's God's grace that starts it. It's God's grace that initiates. It's God's grace that fuels. It's God's grace that empowers. Faith is just our response and reaction to grace. Now, if, if the only way a person can be saved is through faith, then what's the big question? What is faith? Everybody talks about faith, but if faith is how we're saved, the big question is, what is saving faith? And for centuries, Christians have recognized that is a crucial question when it comes to understanding what it means to be a Christian. And that's why, since the time of the Protestant Reformation, Christians have recognized there are three key aspects to saving faith. You might remember we talk about these every couple years. Three key aspects to saving faith. They're summed up under three Latin words. I'll give them to you and then I'll explain them. Okay, the three Latin words are notitia, ascensus, and then fiducia. Notitia, ascensus, fiducia. What do those words mean? Well, notitia means knowledge. In other words, to have saving faith, you have to know something. Saving faith is not just faith in faith. Saving faith is not just some amorphous faith in the man upstairs. There is a particular content to saving faith. There's something you have to know in order to be saved. It would be like, it would be like you being trapped in a building that's on fire and it's so smoky, you don't know how to get out of the building. When all of a sudden you hear a voice through a megaphone say, Go down the hallway on your right, and the exit will be the third door on your left. Now, does knowing where the exit is save you? No. But you won't be saved if you don't know where the exit is. If you don't have that information, 
Or if you have the wrong information, you'll end up burning to death in that building. Well, that's the way saving faith works. There's a content to saving faith. And the content centers on the person and work of Jesus. The content of saving faith is that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came to seek and to save the lost. The content is you and I are sinners and in our sin we have exiled ourselves from God and we can't get back. So God in Jesus has provided the means. God in Jesus has atoned for our sins. Jesus goes to the cross to take our condemnation, to be treated as if he were us. And then to prove that his work on the cross was enough. To prove that he really was who he said he was. To prove that he is Lord and King. He then rose from the dead. Okay, that's the content of saving faith. There's a knowledge component to saving faith. That, that's really important. Saving faith is not just some amorphous belief in vague Christian principles. There's content, truth, that makes up the core of saving faith. But of course, knowing that content isn't enough. That second word, a census, as you hear it, it means assent or agreement, or you might use the word conviction. So it's not enough that I understand the information. I also have to be convinced that it's true. So I understand the truth of the gospel and I agree with it. That's the next part. I agree this is true. Yeah, I get the claims. I believe Jesus is who he said he is. I agree with all of that. I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can get to the Father but by him. So I understand it and I agree with it. But that's not enough. The third word is the word fiducia. Fiducia means trust or commitment. So notice it's gone from understanding to agreeing to now I'm trusting in this Jesus. I'm resting in what Jesus did for me. I'm putting all my eggs in that basket. So saving faith always leads to personal commitment. So I understand it, I agree with it, and I am banking my life on it. That's faith. Imagine a, a young man who begins seeing a young lady. And the more he's around her, the more he's captivated by her. So they start dating one another more seriously. And the more he's around her, the more he thinks she is the sort of woman he wants to marry. In fact, he starts telling all of his friends. The better he knows her, he tells all of his friends, she's going to be my wife. I'm going to marry her. She would make a fantastic wife. Okay, all that's great. But what's still missing? Two words. I do is still missing there. It's fantastic that he knows her. It's wonderful that he's convinced she would be a good wife. But until he actually takes vows and commits himself to her, they are not married. Do you get it? It takes knowledge. It takes conviction. And it takes commitment. Okay, that's saving faith. I know, I agree it's true, and now I commit myself to it. Okay, that, that's so important because 
There are so many people in our area who are convinced they're Christians because they know the basic truths of Christianity. It's probably pretty muddled, but they know some of the basic truths. And yeah, that of all the faiths out there, they think Christianity is true. But their faith has never gone to the next step where they have never actually trusted their life and their eternity into Jesus' hands. Saving faith is knowing, conviction of truthfulness, and trust or conviction. Okay, that's, that's what Paul is saying. By grace you have been saved through faith. But Paul's not finished telling us about faith, is he? Because what's the next phrase? By grace you have been saved through faith. And Paul writes, and that not of yourselves. Now we're talking a lot of English here today, but that is a pronoun. So when you come across a pronoun, you need to figure out what noun it's referring back to. So what's the noun, the antecedent to that? In English, it's pretty simple. If we come across a pronoun, we just look back to the nearest noun. So if I said, um, John fed his dog because it was hungry, what does it, what does that pronoun refer back to? John fed the dog because it, the nearest antecedent dog, because it, the dog, was hungry. Well, when Paul writes, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, what is that referring to? What's the nearest antecedent? What's the nearest noun? I've got to do better on my English lessons next time. The nearest noun is faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. So the simplest answer would be to say that he's referring back specifically to faith. But it's a little more complicated in, in Greek. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but nouns and pronouns in Greek have gender. And so usually the gender of the pronoun would match the gender of the noun. The gender of that is what's called neuter. But none of the nouns before it are neuter. And what that means is when Paul says, that not of yourselves, he's not referring back to anything in particular. Instead, he's referring back to everything in general. In other words, Paul is using that, that not of yourselves, as a summary word. It's like he's pointing back to everything he said in the first half of the sentence. Follow me now. So the first half of the sentence was, by grace you have been saved through faith. And now Paul says, and that, meaning none of that, is of yourself. The grace didn't come from you. The salvation didn't come from you. And the faith didn't come from you. So then where did it come from? What's the next phrase? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Where does it all come from? It is a gift of God. That's where it comes from. Make sure you're tracking with the argument that Paul's making here because it's such an important point. Okay, Paul's point is that everything about our salvation is initiated by and generated from God. Okay, you, you must believe in order to be saved, but Paul wants you to know that even the faith that saves you didn't start with you. And that, that makes sense as you go through Ephesians 2. Right, I mentioned earlier that Paul refers to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where he says that we're dead in trespasses and sins. 
We are by nature dead toward God, cold toward God, disinterested in God. So here's the question. How is a heart that is dead, cold, and disinterested in God ever going to believe on its own? And the question is, it won't. It won't. And so God is the one who has to initiate this work in our hearts. So just to boil it down. So that means if you're a Christian and you savingly believe in Jesus, that faith you have didn't just start with you. You didn't just one day randomly decide that you were going to believe. You believe because God struck the spark of faith in your heart. You believe because God initiated this in your life. So, so often we have the idea that, that faith is what I bring to the table in salvation. Right? I bring faith, God brings, brings grace, and we sort of hammer out a deal, and that's how I get saved. But Paul's wanting you to know, even the faith that saves you is something that begins with grace. Even the faith that saves you is something that God has to initiate and generate in you. Which means that everything about salvation, do you see how this, any sort of foundation you would stand on that would give you grounds to boast in salvation is just ripped out from under your feet here. So if you're tempted to go, hey, I believed, lots of people don't, I believe, that's what makes me different. If that's what you're tempted to say, Paul is going, but even the faith that you have is a gift from God. Even the fact that you right now sit in this building, trusting in Jesus, is because God graciously started this work in your life. And that's why he ends verse 9 by saying, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. And then what's the last phrase in verse 9? Lest anyone should boast. Do you see how the way Paul's describing salvation here just strips away any possibility or anything we would ever have to boast about? What could we boast in? Our salvation from beginning to end is entirely owed to the grace of God. So guess who then gets all the glory for salvation? God does. And the, the point of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is to say, and that's how God intentionally designed it. God inten listen, you and I are glory thieves. If there's something we can boast in, we'll boast in it. Even if it's just a little thing, I'll make it a big thing and brag about it. But Paul is saying God designed salvation in such a way so that you and I are left with absolutely nothing to boast in. Which means there won't be a single person in heaven bragging about how they got there which is such good news how miserable would heaven be if we had to spend eternity listening to each other brag you know I'm here because of God's grace and my church attendance you know I only missed one service in 16 years well I'm here because of God's grace my church attendance and my giving do you know over the entirety of my life I gave an average of 16 percent of my income how miserable would heaven be if that's what it was? But Paul is saying, God designed salvation so we get all of the blessings and none of the credit. We don't get a single ounce of the credit for any of this. So we'll spend eternity keenly aware of the fact that the glory belongs solely, entirely, exclusively to God. The, the way the Bible is going to describe salvation, just to, to put an exclamation point on that, would be, imagine a lifeguard having to, to dive into a pool because he realizes 
that somebody has drowned. He sees the body of a man at the bottom of the pool. And so he dives in and he pulls out this drowned man and he throws him up on the side of the pool. And then the lifeguard climbs out and begins rescue breathing. He begins applying CPR to this lifeless corpse. And after doing it for a minute or two, the man begins to cough up water and begins to breathe. Well, what would you think if that man looked up at the lifeguard and said, Yes, we did it. You would say, No, we didn't do anything. He did it. The only reason you're breathing is because he first blew air into your lungs. Well, that, that's what Paul is saying about our... Listen, we're not going to get to heaven, give God a fist bump and go, Yes, we did it. No, the entire glory of our salvation for all of eternity, every last ounce of praise will belong to God. Because every good thing in salvation, even the good things you imagine you contributed to it, is owed to a work of God's grace in your life. So by grace you have been saved through faith. And Paul adds in verse 9, it is not of works. The Bible makes this point over and over and over again because we always have the tendency to want to think there's something we do to contribute to our salvation. And so Paul wants to say again and again, it doesn't matter how many services you've attended or how many prayers you've prayed or how much money you've given or how many sins you've avoided, you can never earn back favor with God. It's too far gone. It would be like a plane taking off this afternoon from Jacksonville, headed for Europe. And halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, there's engine failure, and the plane crashes into the middle of the ocean. And let's say that on that plane, there are three men, and only three men who survive. One is an Olympic swimmer, one is an average swimmer, and one guy can't swim at all. Okay, so the plane goes down, these three men end up in the water, and let's say the Olympic swimmer goes, guys, follow me. I know the direction. We can make it to shore. And they start swimming. Well, two minutes in, the guy who can't swim, his doggy paddling not making it. He can't keep his head above water, and he goes under and drowns. Well, let's say the average swimmer, he manages to swim for three straight hours before he finally catches a cramp and goes under. Well, the Olympic swimmer, on the other hand, he manages to swim for 24 hours straight before finally out of dehydration and exhaustion, he goes under. He covers, in 24 hours, he covers 50 miles of ocean, which means he only had 1,450 miles left to go to make land. Now, here's my point. You look at those three swimmers, they each covered a different distance, Right? One made it further than the others, but in the big picture, none of them came anywhere close. Well, that's, that's what the Bible wants to say about our works. Listen, you might out-good work me and everybody else in this sanctuary. You may outswim all of us, and you still won't come close to meeting God's standard. His standard is way too high, and you and I are way too sinful to ever get there on our own. So our only hope is to put our trust in the work Jesus has done for us. I'll say it positively and negatively. Here's negatively. The bad news is you can't earn your salvation. 
Here's positive. The good news is you don't have to because Jesus earned it for us. He swam the whole distance. He kept every part of God's law. He met every standard. And then he went to the cross to take the punishment for our failures. So that the only way you and I can be counted right before God isn't by doing enough right things. The way that you and I are counted right before God is by trusting in the work Jesus has done for us. So we're saved through faith alone. Here's the third thing. Number three, and we'll be quick with this one. We are saved for good works. Look at verse 10. He writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, we don't have the time to give this verse as much attention as I'd like, but I want you to notice from verses 8 through 10 what Paul is wanting us to understand about our good works. So his point in verses 8 and 9 is that we are not saved by our works. But now his point in verse 10 is that we are saved, preposition 4, we are saved for good works. That means... Our good works will never produce salvation. But real salvation does inevitably produce good works. Now, let me just pause and tell you why that's so important. That's so important because, and I think this is especially true in Bible Belt culture, there are scores of people who think salvation is mainly just God moving your name from column A to column B. Right? You repeat the words to the prayer after a pastor. You walk down an aisle into the service. You filled out a card. You went through a baptistry. And when you did that, God took your name off the hell list. And God put your name on the heaven list. And so salvation is mainly just a matter of paperwork being shuffled around. God took your name out of one stack. And he put your name in the other stack. It might not have changed at all the trajectory of your life. It might not bring any real practical, tangible effects on your life. But the paperwork was shuffled. Well, if, if that's how you think about salvation, you have trusted in a false gospel. And this one burdens me because I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how many people I have talked to in our area who have no interest at all in worshiping Jesus. They have no interest in, at all in really pursuing obedience to Jesus. They have no interest at all in making disciples, but they are fully convinced that they're Christians because they remember when they repeated the words to that prayer when they were 11 years old. And one day, this, this makes it even more sad, one day they'll die and some misguided but well-meaning preacher will stand up at their funeral and say, I know brother so-and-so's in heaven because his sister remembers that he got baptized when he was 12 years old. Do you see how that doesn't fit with what Paul says about salvation here at all? Paul says you're saved by grace through faith, but when you experience God's grace in your life, and when there is real faith in your life, you are saved for good works. You, you're now a new creation. I mean, think about it. If salvation is not just a paperwork shuffle, 
If it's a life transformation, if it is God making you spiritually alive, what would be the sign that you have spiritual life? Well, what's the sign if you have chickens at your house and there's an egg? What's the sign that there's life in that egg? Well, eventually, if there is life in that egg, it's going to break out of that egg. Well, Paul's saying, if there is real spiritual life in you, it will break out of you. God saves you. It's important he doesn't say God does all this so that you should produce good works. As if it's optional. No, no, no. He says God did all of this for good works. As if it's natural. God creates apple trees to produce apples. And God creates banana trees to produce bananas. And God creates Christians to produce good works that glorify him. So what, what would these good works be? What, what would the evidence be? Well, first I would just highlight, it is, it's not just good feels. He doesn't say God does all this, he created you in Christ Jesus for good feels. And you go, well, my heart's warmed every time I hear gospel music. That's how I know I'm a Christian. No, it's not just good feels or good ideas. It is good works. And in general, a good work would be any work in my life that reflects the character of God. But we can get more specific than that because Paul spends the second half of Ephesians describing what some of these grace-empowered good works would look like. So just follow along with me. So we find out in Ephesians chapter 4 that humility and patience toward others are good works. Forgiving others. Trying to maintain unity in the church. Using your spiritual gifts to serve others. Building up the body of Christ, speaking the truth in love, living a holy life, being generous with what you have. Those are good works. In chapter 5, good works are sexual purity, thankfulness, worshiping and singing with God's people, husbands sacrificially loving their wives, wives graciously submitting to their husbands, husbands and wives cleaving to their marriage covenant. In chapter 6, good works are children honoring and obeying their parents. It's parents making an investment in raising their children to know the Lord. It's, it's parents uh, discipling their kids. It's Christian employees working hard at their jobs and respecting their bosses. It's Christian employers treating their workers fairly to honor the Lord. And, and the list in the second half of Ephesians could keep going. But you get the point. When you go to that Christian friend who is discouraged to try to encourage them in their walk with the Lord, that's a good work. When you try to honor God at your job by putting in a full day's work and being respectful towards your boss and being fair and honest with people and you're doing it to honor the Lord, that's a good work. When you sacrificially love your wife as a husband, when you graciously submit to your husband as a wife, when you show your kids the gospel by apologizing to them when you blow it and lose your cool and letting them know mommy and daddy need Jesus as much as they do, when you invest in making disciples, when you stand for your convictions, when you share the gospel with your friend, when you repent of sin when it creeps up in your life, those are all good works. And those are the sorts of things that blossom in a life where God's grace is really at work. 
So let me close with just three questions. Here's the first one. First, are you holding to a salvation that is entirely by grace? And I mean by that, are, are you trusting in a salvation where you recognize God is the one who has done all the work in this? Are you holding to a salvation where you recognize, you recognize it is not at all based on anything about your performance? Or, or have you tried to smuggle in some of your good deeds into why you would have a right standing with God? If that's where you are, give up on that. Secondly, is your trust entirely in the Lord Jesus? Are you trusting in what Jesus has done for you? Do you understand the claims of the gospel? What the gospel says about you in your sins separated from God? And do you understand what the gospel says about the Lord Jesus as the one who bridged the gulf through his righteous life and his atoning death and his resurrection? Do you understand it? Have you assented to it? And have you committed your life and your eternity into the hands of of that Jesus and then third question is there evidence of these kinds of grace empowered God glorifying good works in your life do you know what it means to be saved by grace through faith and for good works that's Ephesians 2 8 through 10 let's bow together for a word of prayer